What makes a relationship work? Trust? Communication? Not in the case of the lion and the warthog, no matter what the Lion King might tell you. It may not be a story of friendship, but the relationship between predators and prey is still very important to ecosystems. It provides an ebb and flow of population size that keeps both sides in a healthy balance. So what does make this kind of relationship work? Open your ears and your mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph, and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Amanda Reside, and with me today is co-host Mackenzie Charter and special guest, Dr. John Frixell. Welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. We'll be chatting about the recently published study from the Frixell Lab, which examines the relationships between predators and their prey and how the tendency of prey to live in groups or herds can affect those relationships. So to begin, how would you describe your research or the general work that you do in your lab? Well, it's, it's always tough to, you know, encapsulate a research program that covers decades in just one sentence. But uh, by and large, what we're interested in is, is how the behavior by organisms influences the uh, outcome of the population dynamics that, that uh, they're involved in, whether that be uh, herbivores that are feeding on plants or uh, the same set of herbivores that are at risk of, of being fed, fed upon by predators. In each case, we're interested in how the choices that individuals make uh, have ramifications in terms of the demography that they exhibit. What made you decide to research this topic? Well, that's a good question. The you know, I grew up and went to graduate school at the University of British Columbia, and at that time, you know, it was a kind of a burgeoning time for uh, population ecology. Lots of exciting new ideas were being born. And one of those ideas that uh, was just coming on the scene was the notion of optimal foraging. And this was a, a principle by which using uh, kind of decision-making analyses and, and uh, really computer models uh, to anticipate what organisms might be judging and, and what the benefits and costs might be, uh, behavioral ecologists began to first make some predictions about what kinds of behaviors we ought to see under what kinds of ecological circumstances. So it was a pretty exciting time. Uh, and uh, I saw a really nice match with uh, trying to understand how uh, populations and communities of organisms fit together using this as a tool. Sure. So you recently published a study titled Stabilization of Group Formation of Serengeti Herbivores on Predator-Prey Dynamics. What brought you all the way from Ontario to Africa to look at Serengeti wildlife? Well, I've been involved with uh, African wildlife ever since my PhD thesis, which was in the Sudan on an antelope called the white-eared cob. Um, in 1990, I was invited to a meeting in Serengeti uh, that was uh, meant to bring together uh, people that worked on a wide variety of organisms. Uh, it was really the first time there'd been any uh, attempt to kind of model the system. And uh, because the people that worked on carnivores hadn't had a great deal of experience, uh, they asked if I would uh, help with that group uh, just to coordinate with uh, some of the other groups that had a little bit more computing experience. 
And so I uh, got to know a number of people uh, that had worked for several years in Serengeti at that time. One of those people was uh, Craig Packer, and his study team uh, contributes data on uh, the population and the spacing of, of lions that are uh, in the same area. So it's a collaborative enterprise where both of us are contributing from both ends. The paper uh, that we're talking about today used mathematical models to assess the stability of predator-prey dynamics in this portion of the Serengeti. And so just for the audience, can you briefly describe the concept of a predator-prey dynamic and what is meant by the stability of that relationship? Well, the way that uh, ecologists, uh, by and large, have, have thought about interactions between predators and prey or herbivores and plants is, is by uh, thinking of them as just particles that are uh, mixed together. Um, and mathematically, the, the origins of this kind of approach actually come from the way that physicists think about gas particles uh, interacting. So just as you can imagine a couple of gas molecules meeting by chance and uh, forming a new molecule, uh, in the case of an interaction between predator and prey, you have uh, you know, two different actors here, one that's trying to uh, avoid being captured and the other that would love to uh, find lunch. And so when those two particles interact, when they get in close enough proximity, uh, if there's a successful attack, um, then uh, we, we think of that as a predation event. Well, the mathematics of that is pretty well established and has been around for, you know, 60 or 70 years uh, in various forms in one way or another. But it ignores one fundamental truth, and that is that a lot of organisms don't uh, exist as independent particles that are floating around independently of each other, but rather many organisms start to form social groups of one sort or another where they're in close proximity with their conspecifics, and those uh, essentially become the interactive groups that, uh, that might determine success as a predator moves around the landscape. So if you imagine a group of four lionesses that are wandering across the Serengeti Plains, that group of four lionesses uh, are behaving a little bit like one particle, not four. And similarly, if you have a group of 50 gazelles that are walking across the Serengeti landscape, that group of 50 gazelles behaves much more like a single particle than 50 independent particles that are floating around. Well, what that does is it means that uh, the rates of interaction, the rates, the frequency with which those groups uh, run into each other by chance is changed quite a bit by the group sizes that they find themselves in. And, uh, and so what we've done is to try and understand uh, and predict what the outcome of that would be based on the sizes of groups that we see and uh, the uh, rates that they move around the landscape, both of which we know pretty well. What would you say the importance of mathematical modeling is within the context of ecology and conservation? Well, it's, you know, math has always played a really important role in ecology because ecology is a quantitative discipline. We're interested in the, you know, the ebb and fall of, of, uh, of, of uh, population abundance. And that's a kind of a probabilistic process where some individuals are added to a population by birth, some individuals disappear by death. Uh, there's movement around the landscape. These are all really fundamentally mathematical uh, processes. And if we want to understand what happens uh, to the entire population, uh, we need to, uh, we can gain some insight anyways in what happens to the whole population by uh, trying to, to better 
understand and predict uh, the rates of birth and death that we see in a population. So mathematics is really um, uh, fundamental to the whole notion of, of ecology. And uh, that, that's a surprise for many students, of course. I mean, when they take our classes, they're expecting to see uh, endless pictures of lions and gazelles too. And of course, that's what takes us into the field. I mean, it's you know the love of nature that, that brings us all in the first place. But it's trying to explain the patterns of nature that keeps us there. And as a scientist, really, our notion is that we would like to better explain the patterns that we see out there. And so uh, bridging the two, uh, helping to understand the observations that we see, the exciting things that bring us there in the first place, requires some insight that uh, often comes from mathematics. Yeah, uh, that, that sort of encapsulates a, a thought that I had when I was reading the paper was, you know, going through your methods, it starts with, you know, the the models that you use and, and, and the equations, and then describing the surveys of, you know, driving, like you said, uh, several kilometers um, to count, you know, individuals in a herd, you know, it has it all. <laughs> you got the beauty of mathematics and the beauty of, of nature all wrapped into one. So that's kind of cool. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's mathematics, but, you know, the parameters that go into the equations are, are the sort of things that you see every day. So, you know, we keep track of uh, the probability that when a lion sees a prey, uh, it's, it's able to successfully capture it. How far an animal goes, how far it can uh, see. Uh, all of these are, are mathematical parameters that go into the model. They're in some sense, uh, you know, abstractions, but in another sense, very real encapsulations of the observations that we see. So it's the marriage between behavior and, and uh, the mechanics that, that produce population dynamics that we're after. In your study, you chose to look at Serengeti lions and their eight main prey species. So I'm just curious why you chose lions in particular? Um, was, is there any particular characteristic of them, like the fact that they hunt in groups uh, that was particularly interesting to you? Um, and were there any other predator species that you were considering looking at? Well, lions and hyenas are for sure the most predominant predators in the Serengeti Plains. So if you want to understand what's happening population wide, why do you need to start with those two species? But they are interesting uh, in both cases because they are communal hunters, as you say, uh, and we are certainly very interested in, in uh, following up, uh, thinking a little bit more about hyenas and, and lions interact. Uh, it's certainly not uncommon for a group of hyenas to drive lion off, off a kill, um, but uh, that would be about the only interaction that you know, might change the, uh, the, 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 some of the mathematics that we've looked at here. But it's certainly a relevant question, and it's not one that we've looked at much. Uh, certainly, that would be a nice next-generation study. Your study used data that was collected over seven years, and they were collected in a monthly census where researchers would drive out into the Serengeti into a variety of different habitats and count herbivores um, that they could sort of see within a range. Um, do you think the accessibility of those tracks um, affected your results? Like, do you think if there's other areas that are less accessible, um, that weren't surveyed, that are kind of showing different dynamics or what have you? 
it's a, it's a good question to pursue. I mean, there's certainly cases where you might easily imagine that um, if you were going down the Trans Canada through Banff National Park, probably that doesn't represent typical habitat for uh, animals along the highway. Um, tracks in in a lot of African parks, and like Serengeti, uh, are dirt tracks and and uh, you know create not so much of an obstacle for organisms to cross. Uh, but nonetheless, there is probably a bit of a bias that's in our data in that some of the tracks are traveled more heavily by humans than uh, than others. Um, about two thirds of the tracks, though, are, are tracks that are very rarely used by uh, anybody uh, and really just a couple of, of wheel marks in the grass. We need to have tracks, though, because uh, we really want to repeat this exercise in a dependable uh, and predictable way. And it's hard to do that uh, driving across a featureless landscape. Um, to some degree, we need to use the tracks uh, and we do choose them in such a way so that they're not uh, generally uh, too heavily traveled. And we do most of our observations very early in the morning when there isn't a good deal of traffic anyways, but these are always legitimate concerns. And uh, you know the kind of thing that you do need to, to think about when you're setting up a field study. Is this the type of thing like satellite imaging could help with? Certainly it could. Um, but satellite imagery is, is starting to come into vogue. And, and, and you know, there are uh, several labs around the world that are you know, trying to work with uh, photographs that are, are taken from satellites. Um, currently, the quality of the uh, imagery that we can get is a little bit limited, and uh, particularly for smaller organisms. Um, but it, it's not hard to imagine the day will come when uh, it's no longer necessary to, to trundle around in a, uh, a uh, four-wheel drive vehicle across the plains. But one thing that we do from the cars that, that is uh, not really obvious, perhaps, is that what we're interested in is not just how many animals there are in the landscape, but we're interested in, in uh, modeling the distribution of their group sizes and, and uh, getting some idea of, of the frequency with which uh, a predator would encounter herbivores groups of, of different sizes. And those groups fall into a pattern that we sometimes refer to as a power law, where you have uh, an enormous number of observations of, of just one or two individuals uh, and very few observations of very large groups of, of uh, animals. Well, that kind of distribution uh, where you have a decay curve is often well descri described by a power formula. And so this power law it gives us a, a way of, of uh, anticipating how uh, the, the number of groups changes as the population size changes, because there's a regular relationship between uh, the frequency and the size of groups and the and the overall number of individuals that are forming those groups. So uh, that becomes uh, an important element in being able to turn this into a mathematical uh, formula that, that we can rely on. Right. So when you say that the group number of groups and group sizes change as the population as a whole changes, what I picture, and you can tell me if this is an accurate idea of what's going on, is, for example, you know, a group of gazelles has a really good birth year and the population of this herd goes up to the point where they might split off into two. Is that something that might happen? Well, it's not so much that you have new births that cause that process, but rather that there's a, a continual um, fission and fusion 
uh, events that are occurring. Um, and these models are, are literally modeled with uh, the same way that we model um, coalescence of, of complex uh, molecules, where you have a large group of individuals that spontaneously split up into uh, you know, subgroups. And the distribution of those subgroups, it takes on a very predictable fashion. And that's what uh, forms the power relationship that, that I've just been alluding to. Okay. We would like to see how general that process is. And, and so currently we're uh, trying to uh, find uh, similar data that are, that are recorded across other parts of, of East Africa and, and North America as well to see if that power law uh, representation holds up. Uh, we think that it's a very general tendency, and so um, we're hopeful that it becomes something that, that could be a reliable yardstick in many different organisms. On the note of the generalizability of the power law, your eight species of prey animals that you included in the study have a wide variation in grouping tendency. I believe warthogs tend to form smaller groups, like family groups, whereas things like wildebeest uh, form larger herds. Um, and so the power law that you describe, this is generalizable to these types of prey that have a wide variation in how they form groups? Well, it generalizes, you know, very well down, you know, for all the individ all the different species that don't have fixed social groups. Uh, but even for, for warthogs, as you say, that, that basically occur in family groups, it still be it, it still uh, makes a, a reasonable representation of the distribution that we see. So that's why we think that this is a fairly uh, generic uh, way of, of capturing the social process that's out there. So kind of building on that, your paper describes the influence of interspecific variation. So um, can you describe what that means and any of the remaining factors that affect the predator-prey relationship? Well, the, the number of groups, as I've said earlier, um, dictates the frequency with which encounters, uh, that a predator encounters a potential prey item. And so anything that tends to lead to uh, a more accentuated uh, grouping tends to reduce the frequency with which a predator is going to encounter prey. And so uh, that leads to important differences across some species because some, you know, are uh, more social than others. And as a consequence, the risk of predation is, is, is uh, affected accordingly. That suggests that socialization and the attraction that individuals have for other individuals might have a very solid fitness benefit uh, in that uh, the species is reducing the risk of, of all the individuals uh, that are uh, that are members. So natural selection could play a strong role in encouraging that uh, tendency that many species have to, to group together. Uh, the eight species that we work on are the eight most uh, common species in Serengeti, and perhaps that's no accident that they're all social. So based on the conclusions of this study, how is your perspective on the stability of the relationship between lions and their prey changed, if at all? Are the observed dynamics concerning or hopeful for, you know, the health and sustainability of, you know, the part of the Serengeti that you studied? Um, and are there any prey species that are most at risk of instability in their population? 
Well, our, our model suggests that species that are loners, um, and there are some species that like that, the uh, roan antelopes are an example, some of the kudu species, um, those kind of species might be at uh, a little bit higher risk of, of intense predation. So, there, you know, you might be able to, to think of a spectrum of, of uh, risk that uh, applies across species. But there are many other things that, that come into play there, too. So it wouldn't be the only uh, criteria by which I would, uh, you know, predict that risk would occur. Um, but nonetheless, it does give us a little bit of additional insight into uh, the differences in pressures that different species might face. And it's certainly uh, because these processes are unfolding over a very large landscape, um, one of the implications of our work uh, is that um, maintaining a large landscape where this natural grouping pattern can occur spontaneously may be an important management uh, priority. So I think that leads right into our next question. As humans, our population keeps growing and we keep changing and urbanizing the environment, are we seeing the effect of that on herding behavior um, of wildlife? And is that something we can account for in sort of the mathematical modeling? Well, we don't know because there hasn't been a much extension of the ideas that we've explored in this paper to other species and other systems. But what we do know from, from work that uh, was done a couple of years ago uh, across the globe um, is that in places where the human footprint is highly developed, that uh, patterns of movement are, are uh, often curtailed. And what that suggests, it's not so much that animals uh, you know, can't move, it's just that they uh, move less. And as a result of moving less, it means that uh, there's probably some level of restriction on the kind of uh, social aggregation that they can have. Uh, that's a hypothesis. We would need to test it. Uh, but uh, certainly this notion of the human footprint having a negative impact on movement rates is, is well established. Moving on from, you know, the, the cold hard facts, I'm curious as to what your favorite part of working on this study or this type of study is. Well, without a doubt, um, it's just the beauty of the system. Um, you know, uh, when I arrive in Serengeti, uh, invariably there's a big smile on my face and uh, it's just such a gorgeous place. It's a reminder of, of what, uh, you know, primeval, what the primeval uh, world was like. And, and we're lucky that there are places like that that still exist and, and uh, uh, remind us of who we are and our kind of small place in the firmament. But um yeah, it's. Uh, I think just the uh, the the place itself is magic. That's lovely. And so, was there anything that surprised you about taking on this research project? Um, well, everything you do as a researcher is a surprise, and certainly when we first, you know, stumbled on the relationships that uh, form this underlying relate this underlying model, um, yeah, that was that was that was a thrill, um, and that kind of thrill of discovery uh, in that we see when we look at, at mathematical models is no different from the thrill of discovery when you uh, see a behavior that you hadn't uh, ever seen before or uh, when you look under a microscope and, and uh, have a, a view of a cell that is you've never seen before. These are all aha moments, really. And, uh, you know, without a doubt, you know, that uh, we, 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 we had quite a thrill when we, we realized that 
you know, there was there was some predictability here that uh, we could take advantage of. And, and it helps you think that you have explained just a little bit of the giant puzzle that uh, the, that nature presents to us. And, and you know, that uh, that giant jigsaw is kind of what keeps us all going. Uh, you know, you're fill, fitting in just one piece at a time. And those little pieces sometimes uh, take years. But every little bit uh, gives you some satisfaction that you're getting closer to uh, getting a, a, a clearer picture of how the world works. Absolutely. If you could go back in time and change one thing about the study, what would it be and why? Oh, I guess one thing I would like to do would have uh, ideally would be to have um, a little bit more information on the interaction between hyenas and lions. I think that that uh, is actually a a key element. Um, It's hard to do without having uh, close collaboration with with all uh, study teams. And in this case, it just didn't work out. But that is the one thing I think I regret, and we would like to see that piece uh, developed more. Would you say that would be sort of the next step for this work? Well, we are certainly uh, trying to uh, collaborate with uh, researchers in other areas, such as the Maasai Mara area in Kenya, uh, and there's a number of other reserves in South Africa and and, uh, elsewhere in East Africa uh, that... uh, uh, have done work of a similar nature. And so we would like to uh, coordinate a lot of that work across systems. Um, and uh, we would love to extend some of these ideas to North American systems. I mean, the kind of patterns that we describe in Serengeti are, are uh, probably very similar to the kind of patterns you would expect to unfold in Yellowstone uh, or other areas uh, where you have a large expanse uh, and where you have group forming predators. So in Yellowstone, it would be wolves instead of uh, lions, but uh, and instead of wildebeest, we'd be talking about elk or bison. But uh, the same sort of mechanics probably, uh, you know, would apply. And certainly, that would be a reasonable conjecture. So I'd love to see that happen. Whether that happens in my lifetime, I don't know, but uh, it, it'd be great to see that happen. So if the, anyone out there with uh, you know that wants to spot to to uh, uh, support our work in, in uh, that we did in Serengeti and Yellowstone. Just give me a shout. Uh, we're ready and raring to go. So we're just going to take a couple of questions from social media, and I'll get Mackenzie to read off the first one. Okay. So for someone who's interested in wildlife conservation biology and mathematical modeling, maybe who's new to it, uh, still in school, where would be a good place to begin learning about it? I would say the University of Guelph is a great place to start with it because I think that we, uh, you know, bring that perspective, uh, uh, you know, uh, right across a number of different labs. Um, but I certainly think that uh, anyone that's interested and fascinated by these kind of processes, key thing is not to be frightened by, you know, the notion of mathematics because, you know, I think there's often a tendency for biologists to, um be a little bit scared and a little bit timid about uh, mathematics. Maybe it wasn't the the subject that that captured their heart. But um, if you love the processes and if you love the systems, the math will come to you. And um, there's no reason to be uh, fearful about that. It just takes a little bit of openness and, and a willingness to explore new ways of thinking. That's a great answer. You said biologists are afraid. I was like, mm, it's me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I see it all the time in my classes. I mean, uh, you know, people are a little bit fearful of 
of the notion of of uh, using algebra and, and i don't know why that fear is there but you know um i think that uh, for most people it, it should be a manageable thing yeah and and just from talking to you i can see that none of the magic of the system as you describe it and and none of that you know sense of wonder or satisfaction of of you know putting together the puzzle gets lost with mathematics it really does sound like you know if you're willing to to venture into that area it just enhances it yeah it's just another way of seeing things uh, and uh, the more ways you get to see things the the richer your vision so do you have any final comments that you'd like to make about your work or this paper um, and if our listeners take only one thing away from our chat today what do you hope that it is well one thing i do want to mention and it sometimes gets lost because it, you know these things often sound like they're you know solo enterprises and that's not the case i mean this work happened um in part because lots of people were involved but um there's a couple people that are really key and and you know, certainly my my colleague craig packer has been you know uh, a great partner to work with on this but um even more importantly has been joseph masoy who has been uh, working with me for all of those 18 years. And, uh, you know, as we speak is probably trundling someplace across Serengeti, uh, doing something on, on on my behalf. And, and you know, without Joseph, uh, we'd be no, nowhere. Um, he's kind of the glue that holds it, holds it all together for us. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if anybody deserves credit for this, it's, it's, it's Joseph. Wonderful. Yeah, that's, it's super important to always acknowledge that science is like such a team effort. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Frixell, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your hosts, Amanda Reside and myself, Mackenzie Charter, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about science topics, check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights, on the University of Guelph website at uoguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at U of G CBS. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The music for this podcast comes from Upbeat which we'll detail in our show notes. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.